Reading is John chapter 19, verse 31, which is on page 1088 in the Church Bible. John 19, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in the tomb. Excuse me. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, 
one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Different things cause us to cry, to weep. And uh, there'll be a couple of uh, photos just coming up on the screen behind me. If you have a young child of your own, or if you were a holiday club leader of the young ones this week, you will realise that it often doesn't actually take much for them to cry when things just become just too much for them. Footballers seem to be quite quick to cry these days, particularly when they miss penalties in the European Champions League final. I guess, though, the most common reason for crying will be the death of someone close to us. Feeling of loss, feeling of separation. It's a very natural thing to do in these situations. We were made with the ability to cry. And it's often emotionally and psychologically healthy to actually express our emotions in this, this physical way. But other occasions when crying is inappropriate. That's the question we're going to be looking at this evening because that was the question that was asked two times of Mary in this passage. In the part of the passage we're going to be concentrating on tonight, verses 10 to 18 of chapter 20. Mary Magdalene is standing outside the tomb, weeping, believing her Lord Jesus Christ to have died, his body to have been taken away. And twice she's asked the question, woman, Why are you crying? She hadn't realised when asked that question was what had happened to the one she thought had died. Because unknown to her, the one over whom she was crying was actually alive. He had come back from the dead. And because of his resurrection 2,000 years ago, we can come here this evening and rejoice and celebrate that great event. Easter Sunday is not a day for crying, it's a day for celebration. Celebration of Jesus' victory over death and all the implications that has for us if we are followers of Jesus Christ. 
but without spending much time on it now. It was clear from the report in the previous chapter, in verses 31 to 37, that Jesus had actually died on the cross. The soldiers would have been experienced enough in knowing whether somebody who hung there was dead or not, didn't even break his legs. But instead, one of them, for whatever reason, thrust a spear into his side, and out came the blood and the water, it says. Two leading citizens, one a a Jewish leader, who had both shared a secret faith, came and sorted out his burial. Maybe the last thing they felt they could do for him, having not stood by him while he was alive and publicly proclaimed their belief in him. But they ensured he was at least properly wrapped with linen and spices and because of the lateness of the hour he had to be placed in a tomb nearby, in a garden. But what happens next? Well, we have the benefit, obviously, of knowing the ending. But how would you have felt if you had been one of those disciples at that time, experiencing those events as they took place. Is it all over? All that time we spent with him, all that teaching we received, was it all for nothing? A bit like studying for three years, and at the end of those three years, just failing your exams and asking yourself, was it all worthwhile? Who was that man that we gave up everything for? Well, I think the first words of chapter 29 are quite striking. If you, sorry, chapter 30. If you think back to Jesus' own prophecies about his death, what, what did he say? Well, Mark is probably the gospel with most references to the prophecy of Jesus' death. There in the space of three chapters, Jesus says three times that he will die. In Mark 10, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I guess the way in which you'd expect this chapter of John to begin would be three days later or three days after the crucifixion. But it begins with the words, early on the first day of the week. I think it's a coincidence that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, the day that became the day on which Christians come together to worship, the new Sabbath, if you like. It signifies a new beginning, a new start, the start of a new age. Things would never be the same again. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. John loves playing with the, uh, the lightness, darkness uh, imagery. It was still dark. The light had not yet dawned for Jesus' followers. But what happens? Well, Mary Magdalene is the one, it says, who went to the tomb. Why Mary Magdalene? Why so early? Was she not able to sleep? Had she remembered those prophecies? Was she expecting something to happen on that day? Was she alone? The other gospel accounts say that she was with others and here when she comes running to Peter, she says, we don't know where they have put him. Which implies there were others. But John 
chooses to focus his account on, on her. I wonder why that is. Strange also that she was a woman when the eyewitness account of a woman in those days wouldn't have carried as much weight as that of a man. Was God here making a point, demonstrating that he was not constrained by social custom? There's a lot of speculation about Mary Magdalene, but not much that is grounded. In fact, if you read uh, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown there, It was put forward that uh, she and Jesus had something going on. But there is nothing, neither Christian or non-Christian literature, to ratify that idea. It's often claimed she was a prostitute in a former life, but again, that has no basis in fact. We do know from Luke 8 that uh, she did have a troubled past. In fact, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Also says that she supported him financially, so she must have been a woman of means. But the most important thing here is that she stayed with him right through his ministry. She was there at the cross, and here she is now at his burial, at the tomb. And when she came to the tomb that morning, it was still dark. She was about to have a big shock because the huge stone that had been put in place to prevent body snatchers coming along had been removed. And the obvious conclusion that Mary reached without looking inside was that all thieves must have stolen the body. Probably thought, I'm not going into that dark, scary place to have a look myself. Peter and John can do that. I'll uh, go and get them. So she comes running to to find them and then they go off running to, to have a look. There's a lot of running going on here. I like the way... John reports this, uh, this little incident. Both John and Peter are running to the tomb, but it says the, the other disciple, can't mention who it is, the one Jesus loved, he outran Peter and got to the tomb first. For some reason he thought it was an important detail to record. I was the one that got there first, just to let you know. Let's be clear about this. What he didn't say was when he got to the tomb that he didn't go in, or why he didn't go in. Maybe he was a bit scared, unlike Peter who comes up behind him and charges straight in to see what is going on. And what sight meets their eyes as they enter the tomb, as their eyes become accustomed to the darkness? What they see are the strips of linen, the cloth that was around Jesus' head, folded up in a pile, I'd like to say a bit like our children's clothes when they get undressed in the evening. If only. I guess that would have struck them though as a bit odd. After all, no body snatcher is going to take time to unwrap a body before he snatches it, is he? And the implication is that these grave grave clothes are, are no longer needed. The body has risen and it is a different body now than the one that was placed in the tomb. Do you remember the resurrection of Lazarus after four days, who Jesus brought back to life? Do you remember how he appeared when he came out of the tomb? He still had his grave clothes on. But the body with which he was resurrected was the same body with which he had died. It was a mortal body that would die again. Jesus' resurrection body was an immortal body that would never die. The new beginning for Jesus here was with 
an immortal body, the type of body that we too can look forward to when we die, when Jesus comes again. The type of body Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Well, having made this surprising discovery, it's strange that then, verse 10, the disciples, it says, went back to their homes. I guess it's that sort of, what can we do now? A sort of post-funeral situation when you don't quite know what you should do, so you go back to your home. You talk about the person who's just died. I expect now there have been even more to talk about because what happened to the body? Speculation would have been rife. But Mary stays on. And the reason John focuses on her may be that she is the one who shows most grief. As the disciples and everyone go home, she stays outside the tomb crying. And whilst the the empty tomb has been a surprising discovery, it hasn't triggered in her mind the recollection that Jesus said he would rise from the dead, that, that maybe this is actually what has happened here. Her grief has simply been compounded by the fact that the body is now missing. And with tears in her eyes, she looks into the tomb. And at that point, she sees two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Bit of a strange question, you may think. It's a bit like going to a funeral and seeing somebody standing over the grave crying and asking them, why are you crying? You know, a bit insensitive, isn't it? But of course, this isn't any ordinary funeral. Here, there is no body. And so Mary answers, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've taken him. And just at that moment, she, she senses somebody else behind her. So she, she turns around and sees somebody standing there not realising that it was Jesus himself. And was it because her eyes were filled with tears that she couldn't actually see properly? Was it because he was so out of context that she didn't expect to see him there? Was it because in his resurrection body he wasn't as instantly recognisable as he would have been in his earthly body? Well, we're not told. It could be a combination of, of all of these. We are told when Jesus came up alongside two of the disciples later on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, it says that they were kept from recognising him. So maybe that's the same here. And now Jesus asks exactly the same question. Woman, why are you crying? You'd have thought he would have had a bit more sensitivity, wouldn't you? But why do the angels and Jesus ask this same question? Woman, why are you crying? I don't think it's the sort of question where you see somebody upset and you, you want to see if you can help them. I think it's a question that's been asked by someone who thinks that she has no reason for being upset. It's like asking a, cry, a child who is, is crying for no real reason. What are you crying for now? It's, you're making a fuss. You have no need to cry. Jesus asked 
The same question of the crowd outside the house of Jairus, where his daughter had just died. When he arrived, he asked them, if you remember, why all this commotion and wailing? And then he went on to say, the child is not dead, but asleep. Why does Mary not need to cry here? Because Jesus was not dead. He was alive and standing right in front of her. Well, how does Jesus break the good news to Mary? First he says, who is it you're looking for? It says, in verse 15, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Maybe she wanted to retrieve his body and put it in a better burial place. Who knows? But then, in order to reveal himself to her, Jesus doesn't say, hey Mary, it's me. Don't you recognise me? All he does is call her by her name. Mary. Mary. Something quite special, isn't it, about hearing your, your name called? That there's somebody speaking directly to you, the person speaking to you actually knows your name, knows who you are. They, they want to speak to you. And it's even more special when the person who calls your name is the Son of God. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd. He said, the watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Mary knew the voice of her master. She knew exactly who it was talking to her. And she's overjoyed, judging by what Jesus says next. She gives him a big hug by the looks of it. I think the closest you could maybe get to this in human terms to her relief would be the families of those earthquake victims in Italy last week to be told, your son is not dead as you thought. He's been found alive. You don't need to cry anymore. But this is far greater than that because the significance of Jesus coming back to life here is, is huge. For him to have been raised to life means that the sin of mankind that made his death necessary has been dealt with. The victory over sin and death has been achieved by those words. Today is a day for celebration. And not just today, but every day is a day of celebration. What does Jesus say to Mary next? He says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Well, it's a bit difficult to work out exactly what he's trying to say here. There are different views amongst the commentators. Uh, It's been suggested that these words, do not hold on to me, which have also been translated, do not touch me. Maybe they indicate a different way of relating to Jesus in the future. Maybe that it applies now to disciples of all ages and times that they will know him now through being united to him by faith through the Holy Spirit. Or it could mean that Jesus was saying here the time of his final return to the Father had not yet come. This would not be the last time 
that which she would see him. So she didn't need to cling onto him as though she would never see him again. Well, the use of instead here maybe implies the latter because the urgency here appears to be to go and tell the others that I am alive, that I will shortly be returning to the Father. There's a sense here of don't go on clinging to me and enjoying uh, being with me for yourself, but let others know that I am alive. They too want to share in this great day. They want to know that I am returning soon to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Well, there are two key applications I think this passage has for us. The first is that if we truly believe that Christ is risen, then we no longer need to fear, fear death. If we truly believe that Christ is risen, we no longer need to fear death. If we believe that Christ is risen, then that completely changes the way that we live our lives in this world. Because most people will live their lives in this world knowing that at one stage they will die and thinking that is the end. And we're not just marginally different from people around us if we have a different perspective to what happens to us after death. We are radically different. We have a completely different attitude to death. Christ has conquered death for us. And just as Christ received a a new body, a resurrection body, so too will we receive a new resurrection body. And so that means we no longer need to fear death. Our own death or the death of our loved ones who trust in Jesus. In the uh, Christian Explore course, which we're going through at the moment, last week we did the, 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 the session on the resurrection. Enrico Tice there talks of how he went to, to visit a friend um, some years ago who, whilst his friend was still only in his 30s, was, was dying of cancer. And not quite knowing what to say, Rico said, he blurted out the question, what's it like to die? And the reply that came back from his friend was, Rico, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. There's no need to fear death. And of course, if there's no need to fear death, then there's no need to be miserable in this life. We don't need to to take part in the same sort of cynical moaning that goes on all around us, whatever our situation, because we have such a great future to look forward to. As it says in Romans, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We don't need to fear death, and we can enjoy life. But sadly, there is a death we do need to fear, and that is those, that of those who are not yet in Christ. And that is where the second question comes in as we apply this passage. And that is that do we see the urgency of telling others, I have seen the Lord? As Jesus told Mary to go and say to the other disciples, in 18, verse 18, she comes up to them with the news, I have seen the Lord. Jesus says to Mary, do not hold on to me. Go instead to my brothers. And that is precisely what she did. She went to them with that great news. The reason that the team of helpers gave up their time to help out at Holiday Club this week was because they 
They wanted to see these children know that good news too. They don't want them to, to, to live their lives characterised by, by the monster of fear. They want them to know the joy of Jesus calling them by their name or being found by the one who came to seek and to save the lost. And the work, as we heard from Paddy, doesn't finish here with the end of that holiday club. It, is, it goes on. When you look at the building here now, today, there's little evidence of what has gone on during this past week. And we could say, well, that was a nice week, wasn't it? Now I can get back to enjoying Jesus for myself, holding on to him. As Paddy was saying, 60% of the children who came to Holiday Club belong to families who didn't come to this church. We need to pray for them. We need to reach out to them with the love of the Lord Jesus. Hopefully in the next uh, week or so there will be a new display of the design that we are hoping to submit for planning application, subject to the members of the church agreeing to that. The reason we're looking to expand this building is, is so that we don't simply hold on to Jesus for ourselves, but we can share the good news that I have seen the Lord. We don't need to cry about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today there is no need for crying because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, as we have read your word this evening and put ourselves in the position of Mary on that day, as we've experienced the the joy anew of the fact that uh, your son Jesus Christ came back from the dead. We praise you for that good news, Lord, and we praise you that what it means is that we don't need to fear death, that there is a great future awaiting us, that there is a time when you will come again and give all those who have died new resurrection bodies, Lord, bodies that are immortal, bodies that will not die again. We praise you for that hope of eternal life. And Lord, as we think of what that means for us, if we have put our trust in you, we pray that we wouldn't keep that news to ourselves, we wouldn't cling on to you for ourselves, but that we would go and tell people outside of this church that I have seen the Lord, I know him, I've seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that they too may know him. We pray that all those that we know would not need to fear death. That they too can share in the good news of today. That Jesus Christ is risen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen.